Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. This episode was recorded in the studios of KSBC prior to the campus shutdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're delighted to talk to longtime NPR science correspondent, Joe Palka, class of 74. So welcome, Joe. It's good to have you with us. Thanks. Um, so let's start with um, your love of science. Can you trace that back to any particular point in time? Um, no. <laughs> no, I... Uh, okay, next question. I got, uh, I got interested in... I wasn't interested in science... Uh, well, okay. I got interested in sleep research when I was a freshman uh, here, mm. but not here, not because of here. Uh, I went to visit a friend at Stanford, and he happened to be living in a dormitory uh, that had as its dorm resident a guy named Bill Dement. And Bill Dement was the, is, I think he's still alive. I think he is, yeah. Is the father of modern sleep research. I mean, he did all the seminal studies in the 50s talking about rapid eye movements and dreaming and all this other stuff and uh he had just left new york to go to stanford and he was a dorm resident and he set up a sleep lab in the basement of the dorm and i was visiting i drove up with a bunch of people from here and they dropped me off at stanford and they went wherever they were going i think actually i met them in berkeley because i have a picture of me in berkeley uh, from that trip, so it must have been that I continued up the peninsula. Anyway, I didn't have a place to sleep in Stanford, so I slept in the sleep lab, and I was a sleep, sleep subject. And I just thought it was really interesting that you could look at squiggly lines on a piece of paper and decide, oh, this is somebody dreaming, this is somebody not dreaming. I don't know. I just thought the idea that you could peer into somebody's brain was pretty interesting. And so I got interested in sleep research, uh, and I did some psychology research, but I wasn't, I mean, my my interest was fairly narrowly focused because I didn't take any astronomy or physics or chemistry or any, well, I took chemistry, but that was sort of, I'm not sure why I needed, I needed to fulfill the science requirement. <laughs> Most people <laughs> took, you know, rocks for jocks or astronomy <laughs> for poets or something, but um, I took, uh, I took chemistry. And um, yeah, so it was all... It was not, it wasn't love at first sight. Mm-hmm. Following Pomona, you went to UC Santa Cruz to, uh, to get your PhD, and actually that's probably where the beginning of your uh, interest in sleep physiology started. <laughs> no, it's not yeah. where it started. Okay. It started when I was a freshman at Pomona, mm-hmm. and I went to visit a friend at Stanford, and mm-hmm. he his dorm resident had a, uh, had a sleep lab in the right. basement of the sleep hall, sleep in the basement of the dorm. Mm-hmm. Um, I got in, I I didn't, after I graduated from Pomona, I kind of stopped doing sleep research, uh, and I decided I was going to try to go to medical school. And uh, so I took a few classes in medical school and then went back. Uh, I had to, I had to fill my pre-med requirements, so I took an extra year of undergraduate classes. And then when I didn't get into medical school, I applied to graduate school in sleep research again because that was the only other thing I thought I might be interested in. 
And then you transitioned. When did you decide to transition into journalism? Well, that came at the end of graduate school. I was <clears throat> four years into uh, my dissertation, my work. I had completed all the data that I needed to gather for the project I was working on. And uh, I saw an ad in Science Magazine uh, for something called the uh, Mass Media Science and Engineering Fellows Program. And um, th what the program does is it takes scientists or people in research and put them in a news operation for the summer. And so I spent 10 weeks in the summer of 1981 at the CBS affiliate in Washington, D.C. And that's when it really hit me that I wanted to switch careers because I thought I really liked teaching and I liked learning all the stuff I was learning. And I liked the fact that, you know, when you're a graduate student, you're at the bottom of the ladder in every research setting. But when you're a journalist, they open the door for you and, you know, give you a cold drink. And I thought that was a much nicer way to be treated. So I... Um, So I decided to switch, but I, I was all, I was close to finishing my degree, so I came back and finished my PhD. So let's how did you um, how did you end up at NPR? Can you give us a little Sure. Well uh, after I finished my PhD, I got a job in Washington, D.C., back at the station that I had been an intern at. I should have said that the internship was, yeah, I said Washington. So I got a, a gig as an intern in the station that I uh, uh, worked at. And I, I did a job for, it was more general news. And then I went, I didn't like that very much. And I went off and did something else. And then I came back a year or two later, and I was the science producer. So I, in one sense, I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. But in another sense, I didn't like local news very much. So I, um, I, I, I don't know what would have happened. But one day, the editor of Nature magazine called up and said, did I want to come work for them? And uh, I, I don't know, how, you know, there's a there's the reasons that happened are complicated, but it happened. And so I wound up going to Nature in 1986. And that was when my journalism career really started because I, I, local television news is is mostly, I mean, it was news regurgitation. There was no, we had to do a story every night and it had to have a doctor and it had to have a patient and, and it was very formulaic and I didn't like doing it very much. But at Nature, I mean, I was covering the things that were important for U.S. scientists all across the board. and. Uh, so I did that for three and a half years, and then I got uh, traded to Science Magazine, uh, and I did that for three and a half years, and then I had a difference of opinion about the editorial content of the science section of Science Magazine with the editor, and uh, so I decided I didn't like it there anymore. I, I mean, I was the top writer, but I didn't like, I didn't agree with the editor's views of the pay, of the journal. So. Um, NPR, I had met a lot of the people from NPR just by going to press conferences in Washington and getting to know them. And so 
they had a, one of the science correspondents was going off to take a year as a foreign correspondent in Africa, and they needed to fill behind him. And so they offered me the one-year gig to fill behind this guy. And uh, so I took a pay cut and a one-year gig uh, to try NPR. You've been um, in journalism since early nine, uh, the early 80s. And, and how, can you, how would you say science communication and the coverage of science have changed in the span of your career? Well, I mean, when I started, um, you pretty much had to have a printing press or a broadcast tower if you wanted anybody to hear you. And now everybody has the same access to the world because they have a cell phone in their pocket. So like you guys are, you know, I mean, there's no way that this show would get on the air unless, well, you might put it on KSPC, but there's no national broadcast that would take on a, a thing like this. But this particular podcast could be listened to by anyone anywhere in the world, pretty much. So, you know, that's the biggest change. So can you tell us about um, the Psycomers um, community that you have developed at NPR? Sure. Um, um, so we, one of the things that uh, I feel very strongly about is the importance of science communication, not just by me, because what, again, what's happened since, since you don't need a broadcast tower or a printing press to reach a lot of people, there's a sort of a democratization of science coverage or science news, and there's not enough science journalists out there to do all the science coverage that needs to be done. So I think scientists should pick up some of the slack. And so my goal was to um, encourage young scientists, and I say young because mostly the older scientists didn't weren't as receptive to the to the message, but I'll take anybody. And I say, you know, here are the here are the tools that you need to be able to communicate well. Um, I, but I mean, I can show people or tell people how to how to talk to the public, but it only works if you do it. And so um, I I was um, I I I started this. I got this group together. I, I then I had a lot of help from a from a. Um, uh, graduate student who came to NPR as an assistant producer and um, um, she helped, she she really built it into a big operation. Her name is Maddie Sophia. And now she's doing the NPR science podcast, uh, Shortwave. So um, listen to that if you haven't yet. As we record this, you're on campus for the college's uh, Weird Science Colloquium mm -hmm. um, on science denial. From your understanding, what motivates science denial? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a science denier, so I don't know why people deny it. I mean, you should ask a science denier. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Some, some people feel it's an aff I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know why people would say I, they don't believe that the earth is round. So it doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to convince them otherwise. I'm just, if that's their belief, I'm fine. But it's not based on facts, so I, I, I don't know what to say. Um, has uh, sort of the, the fake news climate 
um, and the science deniers, has that affected how you how you present science in any way? No. I I don't think so. I'm I I, I you know I may be pissing in the wind, but I don't think that uh, I can do much but do what I do. Mm -hmm. I mean I I'm always I have always tried to a engage my audience and b give them facts in, in a way that they can understand them and give them some context. But I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying, oh, and, th you know, if you listen to me, you'll, you won't be a science denier anymore. No, I don't have any idea. I just, mm -hmm. I, I do the thing I do. It's called journalism. And uh, the, I'm limited by what's reality. How do you think? Why do you think science, especially climate change, um, became so politicized? And do you think there's a way out of that? Uh, well, again, that's a that's not a, a question that I've ever really. I mean, I see it, but I don't see it with any more expertise than you guys do. Um, I mean, why do you think? It depends on values, beliefs. So what kind of value would lead you to disbelieve the climate is changing if a scientific consensus says it is? Whether or not you believe in science. So you think that the climate denying is all ju is just based on people don't believe that what science says? Could be argued. I think so, there have been, there have been uh, vested interests that have pushed on that. Um, start way back with with cigarette smoking and cancer and um, the ozone hole and sort of it just feels like it's built over time this sort of um, uh, just this this interest in um, promoting a different view for for political and economic reasons right so okay so you brought up um Smoking. The people who uh, uh, tried to convince uh, smokers that there was nothing to worry about were not science deniers. They were mm -hmm. saying the science isn't clear. Mm -hmm. And here's some scientists who don't agree with that. So they weren't right. saying we don't believe it. Yeah. They're saying here are other scientists. So the people who don't believe climate, I mean, the, the, the Exxon Mobil people in the start, we're trying to get their own experts paid mm -hmm. to say, no, this is our science. Where we've reached in the argument is there's no question any longer. I mean, nobody right. thinks that smoking isn't bad for you. It just mm -hmm. doesn't happen. There, and it's not, I mean, nobody denies that science. Mm -hmm. So we're in this awkward phase where uh, um, you're saying, well, politically, yeah, I mean, there's obviously people have political interests that say, we want to keep burning fossil fuel. Car manufacturers make a lot more money with bigger cars. Uh, oil companies are making money selling you products. You know, it's it's not that people are saying, I don't believe the science. They're saying, no, I want to live my life as I'm living it. And maybe it's not as bad as the scientists say. And mm -hmm. there's always a few people who will say, yeah, it's not as bad as they think. Or they say, well, scientists are smart. They'll figure it out when the time comes. Mm -hmm. So I think the whole premise, that's why I ask you, I don't, I don't. Yeah. I don't think it's science denial. Mm -hmm. um, in what in your work with with young scientists about um, communication, how 
how uh, do you communicate well about science? It's 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 quite often uh, gets bogged down in complexities. How do you avoid that? The answer to the question, how do people communicate, is they practice. And the other thing is they have to remember that they're not talking to their peers, other scientists, they're talking to the public. And so the public want to engage, right? And they don't need all the facts that you have to regurgitate when you're in a classroom or when you're in a scientific conference. So when scientists say, how do I get to be a better communicator? I say, talk to people who aren't scientists and explain to them what you're doing and practice because the first time it's gonna feel awkward and the second time it's gonna feel awkward. But if you keep at it, you'll find some way that connects with people. And the other thing is connecting with people because one of the key elements of communicating effectively is listening. Can you tell us how you choose stories? So you've been you've been in communicating science for 30, almost 40 years. Can you tell us how, how you go about that process? Yeah, I, I find things that are interesting and I report on them. And what do you find interesting? What, how do you, why do you think your audience will find interesting? Tell us about that. Uh, I don't, as I said, I don't know what my audience will find interesting because I don't know, I don't, I can't ask them. I know what I find interesting and I assume that if I find something interesting, somebody else will too. Am I right? I don't know. I get paid to do it, so I guess I'm right. Um, I find, I mean, while I was walking over here, somebody said, hey, there's a story about using bacteriophages to treat liver disease. Okay, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know that was a possibility. And, and so maybe I'll look into that. I don't, I don't have a list of, you know, stories that I feel I have to do. I mean, I don't say, okay, today's climate day and tomorrow's vaccine day and the next thing is, is something else day. I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm doing a project, this Joe's Big Idea project, where I, I'm more interested in finding how the scientific process works. And so I've, um, I just pick things that I think are interesting and scientifically relevant in some way or other. And what are some of the most interesting stories that you've worked on recently? Uh, I think the most interesting story uh, I'm I'm surprisingly to say was the electric dipole moment of the neutron. Hmm. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, um, I never heard of electron dipole moment of the neutron until I got a press release that said EDM, which is what electron dipole moment are the initials for, is not just electronic dance music. Did you know that that's what electronic, did you ever hear electronic DM, dance yes. music? He's mm -hmm. smiling, he's heard of electronic <laughs> dance music. So everybody, I thought, well, that's hilarious. Now I know how to start this piece because I started it by playing electronic <laughs> dance music. And then, then uh, I mean, I made a joke about it because I had uh, Scott Simon say, when Joe Palka came to us and said he wanted to do a story about EDM, we said, oh, sure, we can do that. And they start playing electronic dance music. And then, and then Scott comes back in and says, but Joe said, no, that's not the EDM he's talking about. <laughs> he's talking about the electric dipole moment of the neutron. And we said, what's that? And Joe said he'd explain. So, okay, now I know that nobody knows what the electric dipole moment of the neutron is, except for people who are steeped in, you know, particle physics and condensed matter physics or whatever. So I had to figure out a way to make people interested in it that they didn't know in advance. So I, it's totally artificial. Obviously, it's had nothing at all to do with electric, uh, electronic dance music. But I figured that was a way to drag people in 
and maybe they'd listen to a little more of the piece. And I think it's interesting because the answer is, you know, if you can find an electric dipole moment of the neutron, it will help explain why the universe exists. Hmm. Now, what could be more important than that, right? So I thought that was an interesting story just because it was, I mean, and the other thing is, again, did other people find it interesting? I don't know. I went back to um, the web people at NPR and I asked what story I did in the last year got the most hits. Mm -hmm. And it was that one. <laughs> I most page views of any story I did, 180,000. And it was, I think, in part because the headline was why corned beef sandwiches and the rest of the universe exists. <laughs> and it was a great picture of a corned beef sandwich. Mm -hmm. And I think... I thought that it turned into a really interesting story. Um, I mean, uh, maybe it wasn't, but I got interested in it. And that's basically what happens. I mean, every story I do, you say, well, what is my most interesting story? I, the last one was the most interesting. <laughs> yeah. I think every story I do is something that makes me want to know more about it. And mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that's something that's very important to bring to every story you do. I mean, I taught statistics to undergraduate psych majors. and. There's no class that an undergraduate psych major is more dreading and le less interested in than statistics for the most part. But I walked into that class with the attitude that this is the most interesting and important class you're going to have in your entire undergraduate career. And so I want you to get excited and enthusiastic and have a good time learning this stuff because it's pretty interesting. That was in graduate school. I feel that the same kind of enthusiasm is necessary to lighten up every topic. I mean, yes, there are certain things that life and death that everybody wants to know about. I mean, you know, I want to know about the politics of the day. I want to know when there's a big earthquake. I want to, I mean, I want to hear that news. So I don't have to sell that quite as much. I don't think you should try to make it boring, but you don't have to like say, this is important because, you know, 10,000 people were killed. I mean, people get that any natural disaster that kills 10,000 people is important and probably worth knowing about. But nobody in the general public, nobody really needs to know about the electric dipole moment of the neutron. So I have to make it interesting. So you asked me what my most, you know, what I, they all are interesting. I mean, there's some I like doing more than others. I like going, you know, to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and talking about the Mars landing just because it's super cool. I mean, we land yeah. on Mars. What what else? What could be more amazing mm -hmm. than that? You <laughs> see a picture. I like the pictures when they send them back of the rover. I, I mean, Mar Mars is boring. It's red and rocks. But the fact that there's a really complicated piece of machinery built in Pasadena that's sitting on a plat, you know, on a plane in the middle of Mars, that's interesting. That's a good picture to me. So, you know. There's lots of things. I'm, I'm, they're all interesting. And what you've mentioned, the EDM, is, is pure science, pure, pure science research. And a lot of science reporting seems to really focus in on, on things where they can sort of predict some yeah. great outcome. It's related cancer, to your life. Yes, this is. Or, and you tend to avoid that kind of thing. Absolutely. I, why? Well, that's, that, that's absolutely true. And the reason is... Because I think, I think there's a disconnect in the way science is reported as news. Because if you ask yourself, what are the really important science stories? I mean, what are the medical breakthroughs? We'll use medical breakthroughs as the quintessential, most important. We had to know about this. Right now, 
we're reporting about CRISPR, and there's this really exciting trial about CRISPR, and maybe it will be used to cure sickle cell disease. Well, sickle cell disease is a terrible disease. CRISPR is an amazing technology. If this will allow you to, you know, to solve the problem, fantastic. But we're doing patient number one. <laughs> And we're not going to know for 10 mm -hmm. years, if, if, if it works in this patient, mm -hmm. which it may or may not, it won't mean that it'll work in every patient. It won't mean that it'll work more generally. It doesn't say how much it's going to cost because this person is being zillions of dollars for testing and what have you to make sure that nothing goes wrong. So I've said, look, I... I'm tired of saying, and this could lead to. I mean, I've done a million of those stories about this could lead to a drug. I hope it does. But I think people get a mistaken impression about how science proceeds when they get those stories. Science proceeds by increment and by tedious hard work. And so uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a false uh, importance that we assign to things when we say, oh, let's talk about CRISPR and curing disease. Well, yeah, let's talk about it, but let's only talk about it a little bit because there's probably a lot of other things we could talk about. And I've done it enough in my life. I spent, a, I spent probably a decade doing stories about embryonic stem cells and how important they were and how they were going to, you know, California passed the, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine and $3 billion for stem cell research. And the scientists all stood up and said, if you give us this money, we'll give you cures from stem cells. Well, where? I said, I did, I did the stories. I said, look, this is really important. We should come. I did a lot of stories about it. And I'm tired of that. I, I think that we have misled people about what science can do. And maybe that's if you want to get back to your questions about science denying. I think, um, I think people maybe think that, that science lets them down. And I think part of that is because we've told them that science is yeah. about to do great things all the time. Mm -hmm. And it does do great things. But... They're very incremental, and and you have to look at them in a decade le mm -hmm. uh, time frame instead of a day or a week or a month. And uh, 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 I mean, people get cynical about it. I, I mean, you if 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 a disease was cured every time there's a story about a disease being cured, we all live forever. Right. Exactly. I mean, I, I was I was in a hotel room in in uh, in Texas or someplace, and a local news person came on the air and said, scientists are reporting a cure for breast cancer. And I thought, how did I miss that? <laughs> I'm a science correspondent. I'm supposed to know about these things. And I thought, first, they didn't have a cure for cancer. Yeah. But, but there's this tendency. I mean, otherwise, why would we talk about it? Who wants to hear about it? You know, you don't win any points in a newsroom by coming in and say, small earthquake, few injured. You come in and say, this is a cataclysm. So you don't come mm -hmm. in and say, this might lead to a cure in 20 years. You come in and say, this is really exciting, and it's a breakthrough. Mm -hmm. uh, Do the scientists play any role in, no. in hyping that too, or is it the news, or no. is it the reporters who are just wanting well, yes, something I, that they can get I on think, the front page? I think there's a lot of finger pointing. I mean, scientists always point at the media, and we do it. I mean, we, but it takes two to tango. If they didn't want to play along, we wouldn't have a story. You need each other. So, um, you know, I'm getting press releases. The people who are conducting the CRISPR trial, they're not protect preventing the press from coming in. They're welcoming them in, or not welcoming. I mean, we have a great reporter. I'm, I really don't want to make it sound like they're doing bad things. I'm just saying the nature of news forces you into a circumstance where science tends to be overblown. And uh, yeah, maybe, I mean, 
maybe it's false promises, but I, I think it's a good question about where, because when the scientist goes to the National Institutes of Health or some other place and says, I need money for my research, they don't say, I need money for my research because I'm really interested in this one little enzyme. They say, I'm interested in this one little enzyme because it plays a critical role in this pathway, which is listening to this disease, which is something. So they're all, we're all there, we're all saying it. It's just that journalists finish, start with that last line of the grant application and scientists, you know, don't. So that's, that's the big difference. You mentioned that science or, or it, it, it's a process and, and, and you get all these releases or, or information about studies, mm -hmm. whether, and, and, you know, whether they're close to a breakthrough or, you know, they're inpatient one. Right. Um, how do you, how do you go through those and say, okay, this is something that is, it's, I need to report on this because it's yeah. close to happening or this is quite, I, this has not been reported right. on yet, but it's not fully baked. Right. How do you go about that? There's, it, it, it's, I wish I, you know, I wish I could assure you that it was thoughtful and <laughs> measured and carefully vetted. It's haphazard. Um, first of all, I don't know which ones are going to work. Second of all, I think most of them aren't going to work. Mm -hmm. And third of all, if everybody's already reported on it, I don't need to tell them also. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm very uncomfortable with packed journalism. Nobody likes it, mm -hmm. but there's times when we all report the same thing. So you know that the way science journalists see these things is, yeah, we get press releases, but we also get an embargoed copy of the journals. You know about that? Mm -hmm. So I know what's going to be in next week's Nature magazine or next week's Science magazine or next week's New England Journal of Medicine. And if I see something there that has that kind of like um, vaping is killing thousands of people, that's a big story. I think that's a story that you have mm -hmm. to tell. But I'm not the only one that's going to notice that. Right. Right. So where I'm at in my career is I'm looking for stories that maybe are a little more hidden, um, a little more obscure. And, and I'm not, I'm, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I'm not looking for the ones that are going to change people's lives. And today, I'm looking for the ones that are going to change culture and make the world a better place because we're going to have more knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's a tougher sell. But I, I've done it long enough to be able to know, people know that I'll deliver the goods. Nobody says, well, that was a really boring story to me usually. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm satisfied that there's something interesting in each of these stories. But to answer your question, how do you pick which one? It's... It's the one I, I actually I you're I, sh I shy away from the ones that make the biggest promises because um, I I think those the bigger they come, the harder they fall. So I'm looking for the things that um, seem odd to me or uh, counter to or I never knew that or that I didn't know that was a problem. I didn't even know people had that condition. I didn't know how prevalent it was. I mean, do you know the term misophonia? Mm -mm. Well, I don't really either, but um, it's it's a condition, and I only know about it for something else I was working on. But it's a condition where tiny noises make you incredibly uncomfortable. It's like hearing somebody chew a potato chip, um, and you, Ugh! you know, and, and instead of just thinking, "Oh, well, that's annoying," they go completely bonkers. And the question came up: Well, is I? I mean, I didn't know there was such a thing. There's a, if you go to the National Institutes of Health website, they list it under 
rare diseases. Hmm. If you go to the Misophonia Society of America, they say it's not rare. It's it's all over the place. They're just underreported. So that's an interesting dichotomy, and I'm not going to be able to answer. It's not a dichotomy. It's an interesting spectrum. I'm not going to be able to say who's right and who's wrong. But I never heard of misophonia, so I thought it would be an interesting story to talk about. I mean, I haven't done it yet, but that, I, uh, I also have the conceit, which is also just a conceit, that if I've never heard of it, there's a lot of people who've never heard of it. Right. And I don't have any way to measure that because I don't get any feedback. I don't, you know, nobody says. But if I haven't heard of it, I figure I'm, you know, I'm reasonably well plugged in and connected and I see a lot of stuff. So I figure that's enough to say there there's are others who are going to go, oh, I didn't know that. There's a good chance. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts about sort of scientific literacy in this country. Um, and um, I, I mean, I, I would guess that your, your show is, Probably, probably attracts more scientific liter scientifically literate than those who might. <laughs> yeah, well, that's. I think that question is is a is a difficult one. Uh, I I I have arguments with people who think that the science that the media have a role in improving science literacy because <clears throat> I think it's too late. Mm -hmm. I think by the time they're old enough to listen to NPR. Um, they should have learned that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around because I don't put it in my pieces. I, <laughs> I don't. I mean, yeah, there is a, a certain amount of basic knowledge that's, right. that's that you assume. Mm -hmm. But in all but, of this, yeah. But there are plenty of uh, molecular geneticists who don't know that much about plate tectonics or certainly don't know about electric dipole and the moment of the neutron. And I don't consider them scientifically illiterate. I just mm -hmm. consider them to some extent uninformed, just as we're all uninformed. But I am worried. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know how to, I mean, there's this big push to make school relevant and interesting and informative, but I don't, I, there's a few facts along the way that you just have to learn. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I wish I could tell you why it's important that the earth goes around the sun and not vice versa, but it does. What's interesting is, to me, I've thought a lot about it, is let's say you didn't know that. Okay, the four of us in this room, we we just get up in the morning and the sun comes up and it goes down. <clears throat> How would we go about proving to our friends without having a textbook and without having a class and without having... How would you go about proving that to, to somebody who didn't believe it? Mm -hmm. I, I think yeah. that's hard. I, I'm, a, I'm yeah. stunned. That you know the the, the Greeks two thousand years ago had sort of figured that one out, that that was pretty phenomenal, and and the fact that you know by measuring the motion of planets, Copernic I mean they they appear to go backwards in the sky, so how would you how would you allow what would allow your brain to think well what would make that back and forth motion well it's not that they're going back and forth it's just from our perspective it appears to be going back and forth because we're passing them in their orbit. But you have to rethink your entire world to come to that understanding. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking we're spared being that intelligent by being a little more scientifically literate. Um, but it's always a question. I mean, you know, do I have to tell people what DNA is? Do I have to tell people what a gene is? Do I have to tell people what silicon is? Or what, what, what is the le level of what I can assume my audience knows. And, and what, what's your answer? 
have you? I mean, Does do you assume the they do know? Yeah. Or I don't know. I mean, uh, it's it's whatever my editor says is okay. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, there's no yeah. way. There's no way to really answer that question because I don't know if people. I don't get it. I don't get to quiz them afterwards. I have said through my career. I think when I started out in broadcasting, we still used to say DNA, the blueprint of life, right? <laughs> and we don't say that anymore. Yeah, it's become part of common parlance. Mm -hmm. But when did that happen? And do people? I mean. Does it matter that they, DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid? I bet most people don't know that. Mm -hmm. Does it matter? Not really. <coughs> What's special about DNA? I bet most people couldn't answer that, except that it's got something to do with genes, maybe? Mm -hmm. It has something to do with inheritance? I mean, mm -hmm. it, depends, it depends on how essential the information is to the story itself. Mm -hmm. So if I don't have to explain it, I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. But when I run up to something that you cannot, I mean, like when when we were talking about the, the, the electric dipole moment of the neutron, just to keep coming back to that, the way the theories say that it should have one. Well, why is that? I don't really understand why it is, but it has to do with a violation of symmetry because at the beginning of the universe, there was just energy. And there was and there was matter, but there was matter in positive matter and antimatter. And if there were exactly the same amount of positive matter and antimatter, they would annihilate each other, and all we'd have in the universe is bright light. That's what physics mm -hmm. tells us. But obviously, we're here, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking. So something is out of symmetry. How? And the answer is that there's some. Yeah, little blip, something. Now, it's as tiny as if the if the neutron was symmetry, if there weren't such, if symmetry wasn't violated, the neutron would be a perfect sphere. Mm. And if symmetry is violated, it would have a certain, it would look a little bit more like a football. But the difference between that perfect sphere and that football-like quality is measured to the limits of ability to detect such things. I mean, smaller than atomic scale. So that's why they they keep, somebody says the, the search for the electric dipole moment of the neutron has killed more theories than any other scientific search. Now, I didn't put that in the piece, but the answer is, well, we didn't find it at this level of accuracy, so maybe if we make our instrument 10 times more accurate, we'll find it. And they make it 10 times more accurate and they don't find it. This next thing they're talking may be another 100 times more accurate. How many million dollars do you want to spend to make your instrument? How many hundreds of millions of dollars do you want to spend? I don't know. It's an interesting question. But we were talking about what I think people have to understand. Well, I used sphere and football, and I didn't explain what either of them were, right? Mm -hmm. But that's what we're talking about. So I'm trying, I don't, I don't even know if people know what a neutron is. It's a, it's a fundamental particle. What's a fundamental particle? Something made up of quarks. What's a quark? You can keep going. But I'm talking, all, the only part that I want people to understand is that there's this little tiny thing that's either spherical or slightly not spherical, and that could explain why the universe exists. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever run into a story that that you thought was, this is a really cool story, but it's just too complicated to yes. explain? Yes, yes. I mean, 
Yes, and it, you, they're usually math stories. Hmm. Um, I was at a, I was at a, I, I was talking to a mathematician, um, and he was telling me that the, I mean, if you ask mathematicians, what was the most important mathematical study discovery in the 20, 19th 1900s or whatever, pick pick a pick a recent example. They said, oh, the proof that there's higher order Lie symmetries. I never heard of a Lie symmetry. I don't know what a higher order. So I said, okay, I was sitting at a dinner party and I was sitting around, sitting in a table with, you know, all PhDs and one Nobel Prize winner. And I said to this mathematician, if you can explain this so that everybody at the table understands it, I'll do a radio story about it. And so he went through this explanation. And at the end, I said to all the people at the table, Beside me, did you guys get this? And they all went, uh-uh. <laughs> and I said, so how am I going to explain something that PhDs and Nobel scientists don't understand <laughs> yeah. that he's explaining? So I said, I, it may be that important. Now, then he told me the story that I would have done, which he said, I, so it turns out that there were three collaborators. He was one of them. And then there was another, or maybe, was, yeah, he was one of them. And then there was a guy in France. And they were, it was a computer-based proof. And so they were generating a lot of data to, to get the final proof lined up and nailed down. And in the process of doing that, one of the collaborators developed ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, mm. amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And so he couldn't travel to meet with them anymore. And then he lost the ability to do anything but lie still. So they went over to Paris and while he was like in the final stages of his life, they would project the results that they were getting from the computer runs on a screen above his head so he could just lie in bed and look at them and then blink or whatever his reactions were. And I said, are you kidding me? That's a story. I don't need, I don't even mm -hmm. have to say what he's talking about. I mean, just the fact that this weird thing happened and he's doing this and it's this important to him. And, and he said, yeah, it's a great story, but they don't want to talk. They don't want to, mm. their privacy invaded. Uh, yeah. I said, I understand that, and you know, I feel sad about that, and I don't, it is abuse. It, it, it's a, it's a terrible private moment for yeah. these people. But if you want to know what the story was, it wasn't about the mathematics; it was about the mathematician. Mm. And I did a story this year about mathematicians, and I don't, I don't know any of the science or the mathematics that he was working on, but he himself and the people he tutored and the were fascinating, and so. But the question you asked, do I do stories I can't do? Yes, because they, they just, they, they elude me. I can't do quantum physics stories either um, because I, after mm -hmm. you've said the cat's in the box and it's not in the box or it's dead or it's alive, you've done that analogy. It's, it's the one everybody trots out. It's a great mm -hmm. analogy. Even the physicists trotted out. But after you said that, I, what does that mean? I mean, what, how does that helpful? Why is a quantum computer, what's that got to do with a cat in a box? What does quantum entanglement mean? <laughs> I have I have a hard time with that one. So, but I try. Sometimes I try. When you when you're doing stories, how often does it happen? Like the example you gave us, where the actual people in the story is they're probably more interesting than the study. Or does did you come across? That? Yeah, that's frequent. It is. I I I think. Uh, I mean. Okay, so you asked why I pick stories. Mm -hmm. So what I do now when I see something that's interesting is I just don't I just don't say oh, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. I Google the person and I look to see if they've done any videos, and I see if they're an interesting speaker. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's cheating a little bit because there's plenty of really interesting scientists doing really interesting research who aren't good speakers and they're a little tongue-tied. But I figure 
okay, once I'm done interviewing all the interesting scientists who are articulate, <laughs> then I'll go to work on the ones that aren't articulate. And you haven't run out yet. Not close. The only other thing I have done, and I made a very conscious effort to do this, is if you look back at the last 25 years or 27 years that I've been at NPR, certainly starting five years ago, almost all the people I interviewed were white guys, white men. And it wasn't exclusively my fault that I was only interviewing white men and not interviewing women or people of color. It's just that they weren't as well represented in science and they didn't, the, the white guys tended to be the head of the lab or the more senior person or this, and we tended to gravitate toward them because they were the ones. And then of course it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because they get good at answering your questions. And so you know you're gonna get a reliable interview so you go back to them. But now, if since I've said I have a lot of latitude about what story I cover, I try to cover stories where the principles are, you know, a Latina or, or a, 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 some, a Hispanic or somebody who you don't usually get as the scientists in mm -hmm. the white lab coat. Because I'm trying to, I mean, a lot of people said to me, you know, <laughs> it happened this week bunch of young scientists came up to me when I was giving a talk at UC San Diego and they said, my parents made me listen to you in the when I was sitting in the back seat of their car and you were my introduction to science and I really got interested and thank you so much. And I'm flattered by that. I don't like being that old, but I'm flattered by that. <laughs> what, what people have also said now to me is the parents of young girls thank you for putting role models for my children on the air so that they'll know that if they want to grow up to be a scientist, that's fine. There's plenty of them out there. Um, that's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. So you say you don't get feedback from your stories, but then that's, that's pretty astounding. I get, astounding. Anec I get yeah. anecdotes. I get anecdotes. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't mm -hmm. have data. I, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have, I have anecdotes that, uh, that I can share. But um, yeah, so I do get, I mean, you know, we hear that occasionally, but that's very, that's very weird and flattering. But yeah. Um, you mentioned that, um, you know, you, you struggle with where, whether to, to define terms. Um, I, how do you um, present complicated things and without... To you know, and make you leave them accessible a lot out. without you, you leave a you, lot and out. You look for the the little elements, no, right? The, no, well, you, yeah, you look for the well, you look for the, the I mean, again, you look for the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Why are people doing this? Well, um, uh, it's an important part of the ecosystem. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the really, I mean, I'm sorry, we're stuck on the electric dipole moment of neutron, <laughs> but. Uh, just because I'm going to use it I won't forget talk. that term. No. Um, we'll add EDM music later. Right. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> you, you have to. <laughs> From the beginning. Um, you, you, you just have to remember how much you can leave out. Mm. I really, really think it, 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 mm -hmm. the biggest problem journalists, young journalists make or scientists make is they try to explain everything. They try to make it super clear very accurate and comprehensive. And it's fine to be clear and it's fine to be accurate, but forget about comprehensive because you ain't gonna do it. That's what you do in classrooms. Do scientists ever get 
get upset because they think you're misrepresenting because no. you're oversimplifying? No, or? and that, well, there's another small population. I do get feedback most of the time from the people I interview. That's, I mean, I'm not doing the story to make them happy, so it doesn't really count. But the fact of the matter is they mostly are happy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't necessarily hear back from the ones who aren't happy because <laughs> they probably aren't happy. But, but I haven't had a big experience in my career where people said, you completely screwed that up. I've made little mistakes for sure, but I, I think the big picture is that I have been accurate to a level of abstraction. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people is look, if I could really tell your research in a comprehensive manner in three and a half minutes, you haven't really accomplished all that much. <laughs> <laughs> because that's ridiculous. How yeah, could I do it in three and a half minutes? So, you know, take a, take a chill pill and realize we're talking about a different level of, of presentation. This isn't a journal. This isn't a journal. And you're not, these aren't your students. And if people show interest and say, and that's what I mean about listening to be a good communicator. If you start explaining something to people and then they say, well, wait a minute, how did that happen? Or why does it go that way? Then they're asking for the information instead of you pushing it onto them. And when they ask for it, then they're going to listen to it because they want, they, they're curious, right? Mm -hmm. That's the communication part because you have to give something that people want to know. And one of the things that people have said to me is, which again, I don't know this for a case, but people say to me, I was confused. You said something, I didn't know what was going to happen. And then the next sentence you answered my question. And so that's what I'm trying to do is take people down to a place where wait a minute, why is that? So bang, I'm giving you the answer now. How can I anticipate that? I can't. I'm sure I can't. A lot of people didn't get it, don't get it, don't know what I was talking about, didn't care about the answer, turned the radio off. But for some people, it works. And I guess that's good. You know, that's why I get a paycheck. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's leaving stuff out. It's really mm -hmm. leaving stuff out. And uh, I mean, it, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's it's amazing. In 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 thirty seconds, I can tell you almost everything you need to know about every story I've ever done. <laughs> but thirty seconds leaves it's it's too goes by too fast. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you just slow it down so that it does take three and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so thirty seconds worth of information in three and a half minutes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could I could tell you about uh, I could tell you the the one finding from my doctoral dissertation that I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. So I studied sleep and thermoregulation, which is how do people regulate temperatures? And the reason I was studying this is that my advisor had this idea that sleep and hibernation were similar, because if you when you when you Hibernation is a condition where an animal will lower its body temperature, but only so far. They're warm-blooded, and so they hibernate, or they they but but they 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 let their core temperature drop to, if it's normally ninety-eight, it'll go down to eighty-five or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it won't go any lower than that. And so they have various mechanisms, even if it's just getting a blanket, to regulate behaviorally or physiologically. They regulate their temperature at eighty-five degrees, and it turns out that the same thing happens in sleep. When you fall asleep, your thermostat in your brain 
goes gets turned down and so your temperature will drop but only so far people thought oh it's just a passive drop because you're not moving no it's a drop in temperature that's regulated so you go down a little bit and then something happens you pull the blanket up you start shivering whatever what i found in i was having people sleep in cold rooms which mostly they say i don't like it it's too cold in here but the the key finding was that they maintain their brain temperature. Their core temperature drops more, but their brain temperature stays fairly level. Hmm. And that makes sense too, because that's for the you know that's the big that, the, that's where you want to be alive with your brain, right? So that's it. One one interesting finding that your brain temperature stays more stable than when you sleep in a cold room. Yeah. I led up to it just to give you a, a little bit of a lead-in, but that's the whole answer. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still uh, have a, a particular interest in sleep research, no. or is that no? I uh, well, I'm interested. I'm interested in sleep research in the sense that I I I'd love to see the study that helps explain what sleep is all about, but I mm. I haven't. I mean, I see people nibbling away at the at the at the edges. Clearly, it's something that's persisted through evolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what is it good for? I don't know. And, 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 I mean, if you want to talk about editors being interested in things, every editor wants you to do a story about sleep because they can't sleep or their friends can't sleep or their husband can't sleep or they snore yeah. when they sleep. Or, so mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's a huge interest story. You can do it over and over and over and over and mm -hmm. over again. But my feeling is that there's not that much to say. Talk about sleep. I'll lead into your days back at Pomona. I don't know if you got enough sleep while you <laughs> while you were while you were a student. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I I definitely. It's funny now. So now I like to get up at five in the morning, and that's something that happens with older people. There, there's these circadian clocks that they they can switch from being not larks to owls or something. You know, larks get up early and owls stay up late. So when I was at Pomona, like everybody else in my cohort. <laughs> I stayed up really late, and I was I came when I came here. I was planning to be a classics major, mm -hmm. and I I found out that Greek was taught at eight in the morning, and that was the end of my classics <laughs> career. There's no way I was making eight o'clock class. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've I've changed. So you'd be a Greek professor if if that class had been at ten. I went. I was thinking there was a there was a Latin teacher. I did take some more classes in Latin, and there was a famous uh, faculty member, Harry Carroll, who taught. Latin mm -hmm. here for a really long time and he was legendary and I took a, a Latin class with him and but we were reading Livy and uh, I just Livy would write uh, these these things called Livy's first treatise on Rome or Livy's first treatise on something so I wrote for my essay Palca's first treatise on Livy <laughs> <laughs> I was I thought that should be memorialized someplace <laughs> I can ask some more. <laughs> so you got to... Yeah. Go ahead. Um, tell us some more about your time at Pomona. Did you remember... Oh, yeah. It was great. Do you remember uh, the major science stories from then? There's, not a clue. That science was not no on your radar. What was nope. on your radar then? Uh, uh, I just liked all the things I could participate in. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was on the soccer team and I was in the... Glee club. I wasn't in the glee club. I didn't get in the glee club. I was in the choir. Mm -hmm. I was um, on the track team as a manager. I was on the school newspaper. I had a show on KSPC. Um, to be honest, I had had a really thorough college prep 
high school education, and I was ready to do all the other things that you can do in a college education. Mm -hmm. I went on the Swarthmore Exchange. That was fantastic. Mm. Um, really interesting classes I took at Swarthmore. Um, the one professor who made the biggest difference in my life here was Steve Koblick. Mm. He taught, um, I, when I came, there were these, uh, there were these, fresh, they would call them freshman short courses where you'd get three six-week classes or five-week mm. class, something like mm. that that fit into a semester. And they were like completely random. So mm -hmm. the one that Steve taught was, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't so random, but he taught one on the origins of World War I. And what he had us do was go up to the library where they had just declassified some of the cables. It's kind of interesting because cables are a little bit like Twitter. You know, it used to be that cable traffic from the embassies would, they only had so many lines that they could write. And so it's a little bit like, you know, mm -hmm. communicating with Twitter now where you're restricted on the number of uh, characters you can use. Anyway, it was a really interesting view about history. And then I, I, when I had a chance to take a full semester course with him, I took Swedish history. Mm. And, you know, that's not a subject I would have <laughs> guessed I would be interested in. And so I know yeah. more about Sweden than I do about most other countries. But, but he just, his delight in the subject and his enthusiasm for what he did. And we've been friends ever since. And um, he's moved back to Pomona and we're gonna see each other on this visit. He was That's the great. president of Reed College for a while. Mm -hmm. And he was the president mm -hmm. of the Hunting Library. And I was mm -hmm. the science writer in residence at the Hunting Library for six months. So our paths have crossed on purpose a number of times. Um, and he's, he's, but yeah, so everybody has, I think everybody, if they're lucky, has one or at least one, I hope, professors who made a real big difference. And for me, he was the one at Pomona. How, what was your residence about at the Huntington Library? Uh, I, it, it was, uh, <laughs> well, so the library had just gotten a huge collection of science books from the MIT. It was called the Dibner Collection, and they were, they were trying to do more with science. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, I don't know if, I mean, it, the, the, the fellowship of the science writer in residence program lasted one year and mm -hmm. I had half of it and somebody else had the other <laughs> half and that was it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it accomplished what, what it set out to accomplish, but I had a great time. I just hung around at the hunting and library for a year or six months actually. So you're back uh, for, for this, um, uh, conference um, on fake news, and your I understand your keynote address is titled "Do Facts Matter?" Is yeah. that right? Do you do they? Well, we've we've been we've been <laughs> we talking kind of about that. that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're just wanting a preview of your. Oh well, the, <laughs> actually, it'll be a post view for people. Who That's right. I was going to say if you're if you're, you're going to be a little late for this, yeah, but um. Well, I, I think the I think the, the argument is well, of course they matter. You know, you get the you have to get yeah. the facts, but in fact, they don't matter as much as people think. I mean, people make decisions based on hunches and not, you know intuition and stuff like that. And also, a lot of times, the facts just kind of whiz by. And I mean, if I were now to quiz you on something I said at the beginning of this uh, session about 
some factual thing I told you, you might not remember it. Um, so they matter, but um, I remember the dipolar. Uh, I mean, the dipole, electronic dipolar dipole, moment of the of the neutron. Dipole, not dipole, dipole. Di- it, not dipole. Dipole. EDM. It's Oops, EDM. I got it wrong. Yeah, okay. Can't anyway. go okay. wrong. Now if it's I will, EDM. I'll, I'll remember now. <laughs> <laughs> if you were in a science writer, what what do you think you would have liked to pursue? Uh, well, I always wanted to be in the Rockettes. Okay, <laughs> that sounds. But I, I don't have the flexibility. For it. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. I just. Uh, now, what did you think you wanted to be when you were in Pomona? Oh, I. Did you think about it at all? I didn't. <laughs> I, I don't remember having any ambition at all, <laughs> except to, except. Um, to graduate, I graduated in three and a half years. I, I was, so I. Uh, so it's funny. It's a it's a great question. I don't think that I, uh, I just wanted to try everything. And I, but I really, I think that's why, uh, I really didn't hit my stride professionally until I was twenty eight, mm-hmm. and so it took a few years. I, I think, um, I think Pomona allowed me to, you know, stretch in various directions. But it's not like, oh, you know, I was in the radio station here and that committed me to be a radio person, no. And, you know, I I knew that I I like soccer, but I was never going to be good enough to do anything with it besides play it for fun. Mm -hmm. So the things that I spent a lot of time on extracurricularly didn't turn out to be um, things that I... I looked at some of the things I wrote for student life, and they weren't horrible. Mm-hmm. I was I was the sports editor for a while. Okay. So, um, I guess I had some writing ability, but to tell the truth, I hated writing, hmm. and so um, it wasn't like I developed a lifelong love of writing at Pomona. I I didn't, um, but I I like to express myself. So I guess. Yeah. So on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Okay. Um, our thanks to Joe Palka. You can listen to Joe's Big Idea at NPR.org. Is there a better place for them to go? No. If you, yeah, there's a whole website with Joe's Big yeah. Idea. It's, it's NPR.org slash Joe's Big Idea. But if okay. you Google it, they'll find it. Yeah. Google. Can't leave that Google. No. And to all who have stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.